0: Horse Girls have kind of been having a moment over the last few years. Yes, they've lived among us for decades, but more recently, they've been showing up in memes and tweets. And while some of that content has a bit of a mean edge, I personally am very glad that Horse Girls are getting the spotlight they deserve. Speaking as a former Horse Girl myself, I'll just say it's about time. So what is a Horse Girl? According to an article on Mashable, the most prominent, vital trait is affection for horses. From adorning their bedrooms with horse posters, to collecting plastic horse figurines, to humble bragging about spending their weekends with their horse, horse girls freaking love horses. Well, duh. What's missing from that definition, I think, is a shout out to horse books, which are also vital to the horse girl community. Growing up, I absolutely loved books about horses, and there were plenty of horse book series in the 90s and early aughts cranking out new titles on a regular basis. One of those series was Heartland, created by former equestrian Lauren Brooke and starring Amy, a horse girl, of course, who grows up on a ranch that specializes in rehabilitating mistreated horses and naturally treating horses with behavioral issues. The series was kind of ahead of its time. On episode 90, SSR finally gallops into horse book territory. See what I did there? With a deep dive into the first book in the Heartland series, Coming Home. It was published in 2000 and depicts in heartbreaking detail a tragedy that turns 14-year-old Amy's life upside down and brings her and her older sister Lou together in a very unexpected way. On this episode, you'll hear my guests and I talk about our own horse girl pasts and debrief about the way this book portrays grief and family dynamics. I can sum it up by saying we wanted more attention to the human's mental health and just a little less attention to the horse's mental health. But you'll have to keep listening for all the details, plus a generally great conversation with my guest, Hannah Williams. Hannah is a full-time mom, wife, and behavioral therapist for children diagnosed with autism. She lives in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. When Hannah isn't reading a book, she is listening to one. And she says that chips and salsa are her bread and butter. Find her on Instagram at booknerdnative. Find SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRpod or by searching for the SSR podcast on Facebook. I post lots of tidbits about my reading and sometimes my personal life on Instagram stories and I'd love to see you over there. You can use your own Instagram story to spread the SSR love by posting a screenshot of this episode and tagging, you guessed it, SSRpod. I'll give you a shout out on Instagram if you do. If you're looking for other ways to spread the SSR love, you can start by posting a five-star rating or review on iTunes. You may be sick of hearing me ask for this on every single episode, but I promise I only do it because they really do make a difference. With more ratings and reviews, the show gets higher on the iTunes charts, which makes it that much easier for more potential listeners to find. The more, the merrier. Shop SSR tote bags, t-shirts, bookmarks, and stickers at www.ssrpodcast.com shop, or take your SSR support a step even further by coming on board as a Patreon sponsor. As a patron, you'll contribute a few dollars every month. You can actually contribute as little as $1 and get super cool rewards in return. Merch, on-demand book recommendations, newsletters, and bonus episodes are all up for grabs. Get all the details at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If you're already a Patreon sponsor and you're tuning into this episode, please know how much I appreciate all that you do for this podcast and this community. SSR is an independent podcast, and I really do depend on your contributions to keep it going and growing. As I record this episode, we are in the middle of mandated social distancing as a result of coronavirus. And in this moment, it's also really important that we do what we can to keep independent bookstores going and growing. Libro.fm is doing their part, and we can help. Libra.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Personally, I love supporting my local independent bookstore, Books Are Magic, when I shop audiobooks on Libra FM, But you can choose any store you want. Use code SHOP bookstores now to get two audiobooks for the price of one and give your local bookstore 100% of the purchase price. Thanks to Libra FM, we all have the power to make a big difference for independent bookstores in this difficult time. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is SHIT SHE READ. Hi Hannah, welcome to SSR.
1: Hi, I'm so excited to be here.
0: (laughs) The time has finally come to do a horse book. The people have been wanting a horse book for ages and we are finally doing a horse book. Thanks to you.
1: Yay! I grew up reading horse books, so I was definitely very excited to be able to do this one.
0: I grew up reading horse books too, so I feel like maybe we should just like talk generally about horse books a little bit. Before we do that, I'll just share that we're talking about the first book in the Heartland series by Lauren Brooke. And I did not know this, but there were 26 books in this series, which kind of blew my mind, having only read a couple of them when I was a kid. I did read this one when I was growing up. Um, I read a lot of the horse book series or kind of like read a few books from this one, a few books from that one, um, worked my way through a bunch of them. But tell me a little bit more about like your history with horse books as an overall genre, maybe about Heartland specifically, why you wanted to read this one.
1: Yeah. So I grew up actually writing. I started taking horse lessons when I was young and I did it competitively for a while and it all kind of started with a uh, really close family friend of ours. She did, you know, the whole equestrian Thing and she started reading the Thoroughbred series um, by Joanna Campbell. I remember, yeah. (laughs) And that's kind of where my love started. I remember that me and um, this family friend, her name was Grace, we grew up together. We were on a road trip to Colorado which is like a two day road trip. And I remember seeing her reading those thoroughbred books on the road. And I was like, I should get into those. And I did. And that kind of fostered not only my love for, you know, horse literature, but also for horses in general. And so that was kind of a start to like a whole life adventure for me. But then it kind of bled into like, Heartland and then The Saddle
0: Club and Pine Hollow
1: and all of those books.
0: <laughs> You're jogging my memory on so many of the series because I remember The Saddle Club very clearly. I think that was maybe my favorite of the horse Series, but I had forgotten about Thoroughbred, and I think I really liked Pine Hollow, and I haven't thought about it in years. Heartland, I sort of remembered mostly because the covers are very memorable, like at least the one for the one we're talking about. Again, this is the first book in the series coming home, and it's just the main character, Amy's face, like really dramatically turned away, and then there's these like horses <laughs> right. in the foreground. So I remember the covers of Heartland, but oh wow, you're blowing my mind with these memories of my horse book childhood. Yes. Um, There was also, I mean, like,
1: I think I barely touched the surface too. I mean, there's like Phantom Stallion. And then if you want to go like not middle grade, I think when I was like a little bit older, I got into even like some of the more like nonfiction stuff like Sea Biscuit, and like when racehorses were like a big deal and, and all that stuff. So it's a whole, it's a whole universe you can really deep dive into. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's quite a subculture. And I too was just generally into horses when I was a kid. Um, my grandfather lived in Saratoga Springs, New York, which is like a huge racing capital. Um, And he Mm -hmm. always had, he had this like very old horse that was like perpetually old. I mean, the horse was very old when I was four and continued to be very old until I was like 16. And her name was Candy. And every time we would go visit my grandparents, we would go visit Candy and he would put me on the horse. Um, And he hadn't been super into horses when my mom was growing up, but it was something that he like developed later in life. And I think he was like, oh, I'm going to get my grandkids into horses and this can be a thing that we do together. And I was the only one of the grandchildren that really like latched onto it. And so every time I would go up to visit them in Saratoga, it started with just going and like sitting on Candy's back. But then we would like take these really cool tours of like the way they take care of the horses at the racetrack. And we would go to horse auctions just to like watch it. Like he just really fed my love of horses. I grew up as an animal lover. Pretty much everybody in my family loves animals, but I think this horse thing was really fueled by these trips to Saratoga, and he, like, made all these friends in the area that had different farms that we would just go hang out at. It was, like, my favorite week of the year every year. Finally, when I was about 11 or 12, I convinced my mom to let me take lessons, which it's a very expensive hobby. Like, it's extremely pricey. I don't know how people afford to do it all the time, especially with, like, multiple children. So it was, like, I could go, I think, once every other week, and it was, like, a huge deal that I could finally go. And I started going to horse camps and I just, I mean, I was obsessed. I read all the horse books. I like started watching these, like my grandfather got me these documentaries about horses. I don't know. I probably could not find them now if I had to, but there was this one about like a horse called Aaron Gobra that I watched just over <laughs> and over and over again and it had this Gaelic music in the background that was very relaxing. And I had an unfortunate fall when I was probably like, I mean, it was maybe two or three years into my like earnest riding career career in quotes, but I was at camp and I fell off a horse while the horse was cantering and broke my ankle and I never could get over it, which was sad. Like I tried, I tried to go back and take lessons. I went back to camp and I just like could never get past the point where I had been before. And so it was sort of a waste for me to continue with it. And I think that at that same moment, like, I stopped reading the horse books. I stopped being into all the horse pop culture. So I think I, like, very quickly went from being, like, a horse girl to not being a horse girl. And so I had started this series, Heartland, um, and I, I probably just fell off of it after a few books.
1: That's actually a really unfortunate and sad story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess now that I tell it, it is kind of sad. But in like in the moment, it just seemed it kind of took a long time for the whole thing to peter out. So in the moment, I guess it didn't seem that heartbreaking. But now I'm like, oh, that was kind of a bummer. It would have been cool if I'd kept up with that.
1: But also at the same time, I mean, I didn't continue riding horses forever and it's not a realistic lifestyle to keep going. And like you said, it is extremely expensive. And if you are going to continue to do it competitively or anything like that, I mean, it has to basically become like your life or your career. And eventually, although not for the same reasons, I stopped um, being a part of kind of that whole sphere for a while as well.
0: So. Yeah. It's weird because I think a lot of people dip into it for a little while. Like I know a lot of people who took riding lessons for a year or two years. Um, one of my younger sisters actually has continued riding. She's been riding for probably 16 or 17 years, and she still goes to the barn a couple of times a week and rides her horse and takes care of the horses. But She's really the only person I know who took this like childhood love and turned it into more of an adult lifestyle. So um, shout out to you, Emily, if you're listening, because that's pretty cool of you. I don't know many others who have stuck with it. And I was thinking while I was reading this book, and I wonder what your thoughts on this would be, like what is it about horses or even just like horse pop culture that so many kids are obsessed with? Because I think that, yes, I loved The Saddle Club and Pine Hollow and all of these series because I sort of had, I was lucky enough to have experiences with horses. But that's not true for everyone. And yet these series have been beloved for years and years. And I, just, I was trying to rack my brain to think about like, what is it about these stories and about these animals that kids just attach to?
1: Yeah, I think that and maybe this is why and maybe this is just my experience. But I think that for anybody who has been in a contact with or in relationship with in any kind of way like with these animals kind of understand that it's different I mean these animals are kind of magical I mean essentially they're like unicorns without the horns yeah. and they are you know incredibly smart and intelligent you can build relationships with them I guess you know Marion even kind of I love the term that she uses in the book where she talks about like joining up with the horse. And Mm -hmm. it really is like this really special and magical and really unique experience where you kind of share this world with another living being that's not a human for a little bit. And it's just a really cool experience. And I think that if you've ever um, kind of had that experience with a horse before, then you can understand maybe like that. This kind of can become like your world, and you can become like really consumed by it. And I think that so many kids that um, either like even just like went to horse camp or whatever kind of had that like brief magical moment and consumed books like this, like I did, where it just kind of became your world for a little
0: bit. Yeah, and these series I think do such a great job because it's sort of like it has the feeling of a babysitter's club, not so much Heartland, of course, because it's it's a different dynamic. But Pine Hollow and Saddle Club in particular, they have these great. Characters with these great friendships that have interesting things going on at home and with friends and with relationships, but you throw in these, as you said, these magical animals that also sort of get these characters a peek into a whole other world that not every kid gets to experience. Um, so I think there's that added layer. You know, you take these friendship stories that kids love to begin with and you turn them on their head by putting them in like a different setting with the barn and putting in horses and then you know adding these like wise adults that always also seem to be in horse books. There's always like an older horsewoman or like a horse trainer that has so much wisdom both about horses and about life and so I think like that always is an important element of these books. But when I was researching to get ready for our conversation today there's truthfully not a lot out there about Heartland but there there are a lot of stories and articles out there about like horse books in general and I pulled out a few all of which I'll link in the show notes of this episode, but one of them was an article called What Makes a Good Horse Book, and I found it on the Horn book, um, and the way that the writer of this article closes it out is by saying, horses hold a special place in children's literature. They have noble hearts and can reward those who love them with affection, loyalty, and sometimes superhuman feats of strength and courage. Authors who understand horses and bring them to life on the page can invite young readers to share in that unique bond, perhaps feeding a lifelong love for horses and all their funny, obstinate, individual, and heroic character which I also thought captured captured really well and was very similar to what you said, um, just about how they're very special animals.
1: Yeah, they are. And I think that there can also be something to be said for even, like, kind of just the way animals can be brought into literature in general. I mean, you think about stories that have, like both crushed and delighted people for years like Homeward Bound Uh. and The Horse Whisperer or Marley and Me. I mean, they all have that like (laughs) animal element. And there's just something really special again about this like really smart and wise and loyal and friendly living being that's not a human, but that we still get to have that like really intimate relationship with. I think it's just really special and involving that in the media that we consume, I think just ends
0: up landing in a really special way with us. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's talk a little bit more specifically about Heartland. So what's different about Heartland is that our main character, Amy, lives on a ranch that's owned by her mom, which is a very cool thing to start with. Um, But the other sort of key element of Heartland is that the ranch caters to and treats horses that have behavioral issues or who are rescue horses, which in some way I thought was kind of ahead of its time, or at least in the way that I was aware of, because now, of course, in 2020, I think there's so much more awareness of animal rescues um, and people are just much more active in advocating for animal rights and just like bringing attention to problems with the way that different animals are treated all around the world. And so the fact that in 2000, the author Lauren Brooke was like, you know, it'd be cool this like kind of badass woman who brings all these sad, scared, lonely horses to her ranch and uses these alternative methods to correct their behavior or calm them down or make them feel loved. I thought that was a really cool concept to begin with.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I'm sure, you know, we'll get into it when we start talking about more of like the plot points of the book, but I also thought that it was really interesting that they kind of used those struggles that the horses were going through in the book to kind of mirror the trauma that Amy had experienced. Like I said, I'm sure we'll go into it later, but I thought it was really interesting that I felt like a lot of the things that these horses were coming in for, like these traumas, kind of seemed to be similar with what Amy was also experiencing.
0: Yeah, I liked that a lot too. And I had a lot of notes about, oh, like, here's another parallel. Here's another parallel. Mm -hmm. There were moments, and again, I'm sure we'll talk about this. There were moments when I wish that that had been explored a little bit deeper because I feel like Lauren Brooke, like she really had something there with these parallel grief stories that are happening in the book. And I was like, if you could have just taken one more step, especially with Amy, that would have been very cool. But I think the setup was really interesting and thoughtful. One sort of factoid that I found while I was looking into this book is that Lauren Brooke, she developed all the storylines and the characters. Um, she came up with the personalities and the names and sort of the overviews of all the horses. But she um, then worked with a team of writers who actually um, wrote the stories. So she was a professional equestrian herself. She was born and raised around horses. She went on to do dressage, I believe, and maybe a few other like professional horse events. Um, and then she she wrote about how when she was a kid, her favorite thing to do was just like write out Long lists of horse names, and then to define their personalities. So she just had these like pages and pages of different horse names with like defining characters of them. And she was like, "Yeah, I still do that, but now I get paid to do it." So there you go, like kind of a cool connection from her childhood to what she ultimately ended up doing, even after her professional riding career was over. That's adorable. I know. In all of your reading of horse books and horse book series, is there anything that sticks out to you about Heartland? From when you were a kid or does it sort of blend in with everything else no
1: I definitely took a couple of notes so a couple things to mention there is a character with which can we talk about spoilers oh yeah spoilers oh, are okay yeah.
0: it's been 20 years everyone so if you haven't read Heartland I'm sorry but we're gonna well I'm not sorry because we'll tell you what it's about <laughs> if you wish that you didn't know the ending then I guess like put a pause here and then go back and read it, but please come back. Spoilers are fine. I think we're way past sort of like the point when spoilers are not okay, but thank you for checking. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Um, so there is a farmhand um, named Ty and he works at Heartland with Amy and the family. And I still, to this day, don't know if I've shipped a couple so hard. They just, <laughs> their relationship. Uh. Throughout the entire series, I just loved and I just found him to be so just endearing and good. Just he's just so good. And just rereading it and remembering like they don't even really have actually that many interactions in the first book. But I think just remembering like how early he gets introduced to the story and how early kind of, well, for as much as a middle grade can portray sexual tension, but like, you know, how early it's there. that
0: starts. Oh it's yeah, there. it's
1: there. Um, And so that stuck out to me is just remembering like, oh yeah, like their relationship kind of starts blooming so early. And then also <laughs> there's this random line. It just talks about how I highlighted it at one point, but it specifically mentions that Amy has gray eyes. And I remember as a kid reading that for the first time, I was like, I want gray eyes. So like, cool. That's, that's <laughs> cool. That's the coolest thing ever. And it was just such like a random thing. And I think to this day, like every once in a while, I'll look in the mirror and I'll be like, I mean,
0: they could pass for gray. Um. Like people might think that if I if I sort of suggested it to them, they wouldn't argue with me. I mean, I'm seeing your eyes through Skype right now, and you're not super like I I would buy it. I would.
1: Right, right. So anyway, that that stuck out to me for sure and yeah I think those were the two kind of big things where I was like oh I remember that um I also I also really remember there's a specific horse that she has a relationship with in the book whose name is Sundance and he is a buckskin which is basically like they have like a really kind of light tannish brown coat and then they have like a dark black mane and tail and I remember as a kid thinking that that color horse in particular was just so beautiful. And the fact that Amy like had this horse named Sundance that had like the most like fiery personality and was just like so beautiful. I mean like kind of like spirit vibes, you know, from the movie
0: Spirit. Oh yeah, I remember Spirit. We had all the horse movies (laughs) in my house growing up because my little sister (laughs) also grew into being a horse girl. So it was like I was experiencing the horse pop culture at all different times. (laughs)
1: And I remember that thinking that Sundance was like the coolest horse, which is kind of funny because I do feel like actually his personality, when he kind of gets introduced into the book at pretty much the very beginning, when Amy takes him on that initial like trail ride, I remember thinking even as a kid, like, oh, their personalities kind of match. And I've wondered if that was intentional on the author's part, that kind of, prior to the accident that happens in this story that Sundance kind of mirrors who Amy like actually really is, Mm. um, you know, before this big trauma happens. And considering he remains a main character, so to speak throughout the series, I think he kind of like represents that piece of Amy that's always there, that's very like, just determined and fiery and energetic and stubborn. And Because he remains such a big part of her life throughout the series, I just think it's cool that he, to me, was kind of like this, yeah, representation of who Amy actually was and is still, even though she's dealing with kind of this trauma
0: that happened. I agree. I think that the author generally does a really cool job of defining the personalities of all of the horses. And I think that for people who haven't spent a lot of time around horses, especially kids who maybe like dream about horses but don't really know very much about them, the author makes it very clear that like horses really do have unique personalities. And you said like they're characters, so to speak, and they really are. I mean, they bring the story to life in really interesting ways. And, and as you were talking about that, I was thinking back to our conversation a few minutes ago about why kids love horses so much and why kids are so into horse stories and I was thinking too about like why kids are so taken with the idea of having a horse like having a horse that belongs to you and of course all of the horses at Heartland are kind of like community property Sundance isn't technically Amy's horse any more than any of the other horses are but she's very connected to Sundance and so I was thinking about why that's that idea is so appealing to kids so much so that all of these authors have written about it and I think that there's a, a feeling of like being responsible to Something or to some other creature that's really appealing to kids. Like, I don't know, in all of the kids' books that I've read now for the podcast, we've sort of figured out this pattern of, of kids sort of wanting to be treated like adults. Um, and I think that like being trusted with the care of something or someone else really is a part of that. And I think that, because horses are so big and strong, they can kind of hold up the other end of that relationship in a way that other animals can't. So horses can take care of you in some ways, or we perceive that they can. And so I wonder if that is also part of what's so innately appealing to kids. Because I do think that kids who really have like never even seen or been around a horse still are attracted to this idea of like, I wish I owned a horse. Like, I want to read a story about a kid who has one. And I wonder if that sense of responsibility or that, like, I don't know, that reciprocal responsibility to each other that often horses and their owners have has anything to do with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is something to be said, too, for the fact that they're so much bigger than we are. And I think that there's an empowering element there that, you know, there's this being that is technically they feel so much bigger than than we are in many aspects, but also just like they're huge, huge. <laughs> and there's something they're huge and there's something like so empowering about like taking care of something that's so much bigger than we are.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think that's very true. So Amy, as you mentioned, within a, the first few chapters of, of meeting her, we see her through a trauma that the more I think about it is an extremely serious, extremely severe, extremely traumatic trauma. Um, and I think when I talk about how I feel like we didn't quite get deep enough on some of the parallels between like the horses and Amy. That's what I'm referring to because I think that the author does a really interesting job of laying out the fact that Amy's been through a trauma. Some of the horses have been through trauma. Um, Amy's there taking care of the horses and seeing them through really the stages of their depression, but nobody's really doing that for Amy. And I think if I felt like there was anything lacking in this book, it was an emphasis on the fact that What Amy has been through is extremely serious, um, and it's something that most kids can never even imagine and, thank goodness, don't have to go through. There are so many levels to it. Um, And so I'll I'll say up front that if there's anything that I feel like I missed in this book, it was sort of attention to what Amy really needed in order to recover from what she goes through, which um, is a car accident in which... Her mom is is killed, and Amy actually wakes up having been in a coma for a couple of days, maybe up to a week, Um, and so she doesn't even know that her mom died. Um, They actually held the funeral while Amy was in a coma, which blew my mind. I mean, she woke up in the hospital. Blew my mind. Can you—I was like, we have to talk about this. I don't even know what part of it I need to talk about because at first I was sort of mad on Amy's behalf, but then her sister was like, well, we didn't know if you were going to wake up, which is— True. I mean, what were they going to do wait? But can you imagine waking up from this coma, not only are you finding out like this very upsetting incident happened that you personally were a part of and you have no memory of it, your mom, who is like your number one person in the world, is dead and you had no opportunity to say goodbye or even to like consider that you might have to say goodbye. They buried her without you, so you didn't even get that opportunity to have closure. And then as if we needed another layer, Amy has... A lot of guilt because the whole reason that they got into an accident in the first place was because Amy had pushed her mom really hard to take the horse trailer out on this very stormy day because she like had her mind set on needing to go pick up this abandoned horse um, and her mom didn't want to go and was like this isn't safe I don't think this is a good idea but Amy and all her like stubbornness and horse-loving ways was like no we have to go we can't wait any longer and you know, in a scene that I really could have predicted, unfortunately, um the trailer is too heavy, and it's not safe conditions for them to be driving with the storm. One thing leads to another, and Amy wakes up to her whole world changed. What was your reaction to all of that? I mean, it's it's quick, it's heavy, it's scary. i'm I'm almost thirty years old and and I can't wrap my head around it. I cannot even imagine being fourteen. And and even being her older sister, Lou, who's 23. This is just so much. Yeah.
1: You know, when I first read that, I was just kind of like, I can't believe I read this when I was like nine. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, it's pretty heavy. And I don't know if children reading this story just don't let the heaviness of that incident sit with them like an adult would. But I feel like even for a, I guess middle grade novels really do go into, you know, topics like grief and death. And and I do think that that's good and that's important. But this, I feel like in particular, just seemed really heavy to me. And I don't know if it's because it just happened so fast or if it was just because maybe as an adult reader reading it, understanding that there was not really any time given To Amy to process this grief. And again, I I think that maybe that would be my one issue with the story as well, is that I feel like there could have been so much more covered on Amy's recovery process. And it just wasn't covered. And I think in the author not spending time on people taking care of Amy, it just felt like really like sudden and quick. And then everybody forgot about it. And then Amy was just kind of like pushed under the rug. Even though she was literally in the car with her mom when it happened, you know, she was the most heavily involved in this traumatic incident. And I don't really know why the author
0: chose to do that. Well, and she had physical injuries too, which I, you know, I I had a moment about I don't know, two-thirds of the way through the book, where I was like, is she healed physically? Like, I don't even think we covered her being well enough to leave the hospital. She broke two ribs, I believe. She me- she mentions the fact that her head aches constantly, which to me points to a concussion. I have to believe that she sustained some serious injuries um, if they were out in this very serious accident. A horse trailer is very heavy. A truck is a very heavy vehicle. Like, there's every reason in the world that she would be seriously injured. And I feel like the author referenced that and was like, okay, this is what happened and sort of like tells the circumstances tells the results and then there's just this weird tension about like Amy not being ready to come out of her shell after the accident and I I just have such mixed feelings about the whole thing and I think that now in 2020 we're thankfully having such different kinds of conversations about mental health which is really important and Mm -hmm. I'm so happy that kids especially are getting a chance to have their feelings processed differently and I hope that in time like more kids books, more kids movies, more kids TV just like continues to open up that conversation about mental health and I think that this book is especially disappointing in that because of the guilt that Amy feels and she refers to it briefly. She has these flashbacks to her mom saying that they can't take the trailer out and then she just feels like it's all her fault. She says it out loud. She thinks it in her head. It's overwhelming to her and I don't blame her, which is not to say that I agree that it was her fault, of course, but if I were in her position, I too would feel that way, especially if I was only 14 years old. And so I think if nothing else... There should have been some special attention paid to that part of her story because that's a unique thing. I mean, orphan stories are very common in kid lit. We talk about that a lot on the podcast. All too often we read stories about kids losing their parents, which often then sets them up for these stories about like independence and like fighting the odds, which is, you know, interesting in its own right. But this guilt piece is different from those stories and it it would have been nice and I think really important for that to be acknowledged. Yeah, and she actually gets kind
1: of hit with double guilt because then on top of her mother dying, their neighbor dies. Yeah. Um, And their neighbor was someone that Amy had specifically said earlier in the novel, like, I need to make sure that I'm checking up on this neighbor more regularly. Um, She's clearly getting older and having some health issues. I can tell that she's kind of not doing super well. I should make more of an effort to go see her and, and look after her. And they also were kind of, like, the only people nearby that were in relationship with her. And so, like, I don't think she had, like, family that lived close by. Um, And then, you know, this, this trauma happens, this accident happens in which Amy's mother dies. And so, obviously, she forgets about everything else. And in the process of her kind of being totally enveloped, obviously, in this personal crisis. She forgets to go check on her neighbor who ends up dying. And when they find her, her neighbor has been dead for, I think, a week. Yeah. Which, again, super heavy. Yeah. And on top of that guilt of her neighbor dying, her neighbor had a little um, Shetland pony that was in her care that had been abandoned for a week. And so... Then there's guilt that this horse hasn't been taken care of, and Amy could have been taking care of it this whole time. And so not only is she dealing with the guilt of her mother's death, but now she has this guilt of not checking in on her neighbor, and then this horse suffering in the process, and everybody needs therapy, but this girl really needs therapy
0: it's brutal I mean when when we say it all within the scope of a few minutes like we have I I'm sort of feeling like I need to proactively retract some of the comments that I have about Amy's behavior because I'm like oh this was pretty brutal what she went through
1: Yeah, I actually made a lot of comments in my notes, too, about how, like, awful Amy was in the book, because she says some really awful things to her sister, but her sister also says some really awful things to her, and I kind of—not that there's really, like, justifications for, you know, things being said that can't be unsaid, but I feel like if anybody has more of an excuse, it's definitely Amy.
0: You're right about that. Let's talk about their relationship because that was a huge piece of the story. And as somebody who has sisters, I'm always especially interested in sister stories. But I, this was fascinating to me. Here's the basics about the sister. So Lou is... Amy's older sister, she's much older, which mirrors some of the dynamics in my own family, so I liked that, because it's very rare, I think, in kids' books that you have a sibling that's, like, much older. I get what's going on here. Lou is 23 years old, and Amy, as we mentioned, is 14, turning 15, preparing for her 15th birthday, which is a whole other sad element of the book. But um, Lou has moved to the big city. She lives in New York. Uh, She works at a bank, I believe, and, of course, there's implication there of a lot of money and, like, a particular kind of lifestyle, which is very different than what Amy and her mom prefer. There's this old like family story that's touched on briefly in the book where Amy's mom and dad split up after their dad was in a riding accident that ultimately paralyzed him. And the way things shook out was that Lou sort of sided with their dad who lives in England and Amy of course stuck with their mom Marion and went to Heartland and they just never quite got things back on track. Lou just doesn't really want to be at Heartland. She does everything she can to stay away. She always like stayed with friends during school vacations and um, her mom is very quick to defend her in the first few chapters of the book before she dies and she's trying to keep the peace between Amy and Lou but Amy is like sick of being disappointed by Lou um, because she just wants the attention of her big sister And she really wants Lou to come back for her birthday. And Lou, of course, like, not surprisingly bails um, before the trauma happens. And that sort of sets us up to dislike Lou, of course, from the beginning. And I was trying to take myself back to being a kid and reading this. I was probably 11 or 12 when I read it. I was 10 when it came out. So I would imagine I read it shortly after that. I'm sure I was fully Team Amy because it's like, here's your older sister. She's letting you down time and time again. She only cares about money and, like, fancy New York things and her boyfriend who nobody seems to like. And how dare she not show up here and celebrate my birthday? Like, it's my 15th birthday. That's a huge deal. So I'm sure I was team Amy As a kid, and I think the author does a really great job of making it easy for readers to align themselves with Amy in this book, but now as a 30-year-old woman who has lived in New York City for eight years, who has younger sisters, um, who are still living back where I'm from in Pennsylvania, I was a little bit more team Lou. I struggled because I knew how I was supposed to feel about Lou. And I was trying to get there, but it was, it was tough for me to get there. And I think I also was thinking about, and I know, I know it's problematic that I like these, but I like them. I like Hallmark Christmas movies and, um, (laughs) there's always the timeline in like every Hallmark Christmas movie where, you know, small town girl or small town boy goes off to the big city, loses all of their values, only cares about money doesn't care about Christmas, like, loses all of their holly jolliness, and the whole point of the movie is to, like, somehow convince them, usually through a former love interest or like new love interest in their hometown who's like doing some sort of Christmas activity that cities are stupid and um, that they should move back home. And I felt like the dynamic was very similar to that in this book.
1: That's a really good point. I remember that as a kid, I totally felt the same way um, where I was definitely more team Amy and definitely reading as reading it as an adult. I absolutely felt for Lou and I had zero negative feelings about the way that she kind of was a busybody and tried to handle everything. And I actually had like a great deal of respect for her as an adult. I mean, she dropped her entire life in New York City to come and take care of this death in the family, which is absolutely, you know, what sometimes has to happen when these deaths happen. I mean, death changes Everything in a family's life. But that doesn't negate from the fact that she did have to completely like upend her life and essentially move across the country to take care of her family, which is no easy task. And on top of that, this doesn't get discussed in the book at all. But I think as a reader, you imagine that you were in this position that Lou is in where you moved away from home and you kind of had these resentments probably towards your mom because you sided with dad. And then this accident happens and your mom is dead. And now you're rethinking your entire life history of like, you know, why didn't I travel home more? And why did I not pursue a relationship with my mom? And I hardly know my sister and what the hell am I doing here? And that's not really discussed in this book, but as an adult reader reading it, I think that maybe that's why I felt more for Lou than I could have as a kid because you have more life experience and you know that what she had to do was, I don't want to say like equally as hard as what Amy went through because their experience was just completely different. But what Lou had to do is also incredibly difficult.
0: Yeah, because she's she's twenty three and the perspective of this, again, you know, I kind of blows my mind sometimes when I read these books where I'm like, oh, I'm now six and a half years older than this <laughs> character that seemed so old and grown up to me when I was a kid. I'm trying to think about myself as twenty-three or like the twenty-three year olds I know to pick up your, your whole life, as you mentioned, to, you know, continue to pay rent on a New York City apartment, which is no easy feat, and not to live there to leave a job that probably is going to drop you pretty quickly if you can't show up to work after a couple of days, to just basically like say goodbye to your social life, to potentially put your relationship on the rocks, And not even for a couple of days. I mean, she's home for weeks and weeks, even toward the end of the book where she was like, okay, I'm starting to plan to go back, and Amy freaks out. I think even at that point, Lou's like, well, I'm still going to be here for another two weeks. I mean, two weeks is a a, a long time, and often that's Mm -hmm. all that people take, period. So the fact that that's sort of her, like, her okay, now I'm leaving and it's another two weeks, is really impressive. And and they do have a grandfather that's still alive who lives at Heartland. And it would have been very easy for Lou to say, you're gonna have to figure it out, Grandpa. Like He is an adult. He's the adult in this situation. The fact that Lou stepped in and realized that she had skills that she could use to the advantage of the whole family, not to mention, like, she planned the funeral. She seems to have made all of the arrangements. I don't want to, like, give Grandpa a hard time, but he he probably should have stepped up a little bit more than he seems to have done in this book. But Lou just, like, does it. And she doesn't have a relationship with Amy, so it would have been kind of simple for her to come back and be like, okay, like, I'm going to do the bare minimum, pay my respects, make sure everything's fine, and then I got to go. But she she didn't do that, and she showed up when it counted. And it frustrated me so much that Amy couldn't, appreciate that like even if they had gone on to have all of these conflicts which they do I wish that at the beginning there had been a moment of like oh wow it was like really cool that Lou showed up it was almost like immediately Amy was setting her up to fail and she was like looking for moments that Lou would let her down
1: Yeah. And I remember in the book, there's at some point where Lou is taking care of everything. And one thing gets forgotten. She forgets the feed delivery for the horses. And she was like, oh, the feed delivery. Like, how could I have forgotten this big thing? And Amy's only comment to that after Lou has literally taken care of everything on the farm is how could people be thinking about this feed delivery when my mom just died? Which I think that alone is just a big perspective like it just really narrows in on the perspective that amy has um and i think i don't know if this is just the way young teens think like maybe they just are so like paralyzed by their own grief that they can't see outside of that sphere that they're in but like do you want these horses to die like do you want the farm to keep going do you want your life to continue. And, you know, I think in her case, she is so numb that she doesn't care about any of those things.
0: Well, and there's an understandable immaturity about it too, I think, where she is like, the you know, she really is upset that Lou is looking at the finances of the farm and thinks that they need to sort of change their business model. She's upset that Lou wants to stop taking in these sort of like what you might call charity cases of horses that have nowhere else to go, but are very expensive to upkeep. Um, she's like, that's the whole point of the farm and you don't understand. And so she's she's very big picture about what has to say the same on the farm. But as you mentioned, she can't wrap her head around the fact that like none of that counts if we don't order the food so that the horses can eat. And I think that's her age showing, which is just that like you can see the big picture, you can sort of see the romantic parts of it about like the dream that your mom had for this farm, which is really beautiful and special there are logistics that have to be handled so that all of those things can actually work on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, and I actually remember writing the note in my book. I don't remember exactly what passage I wrote it on, but I remember writing, oh, this is a good example of like maturity in grief and immaturity in grief where, you know, exactly like you just said, Amy can't see past this like bigger picture. And yet Lou is such a great example of I think how adults deal with grief which is just kind of like taking care of stuff and I just thought that that was a pretty powerful um perspective that was shown to us where yeah like kids are just kind of like stuck in that like my mom is gone nothing else matters and in fact there's this passage um where it says going back to heartland was worse than she could have ever imagined everything looked so normal and i wrote down like that's the hardest part of death i think in general is that everything has to keep going and for a child for a teenager a young teenager that can feel impossible and like insurmountable whereas for an adult i think taking care of those like okay the horses have to be fed and we have to make sure that we call the vet like that can almost be a way for them to cope with grief, which is just so different.
0: Yeah, I I felt that way too. And we've had some losses in my own family over the last year. And that's the hardest part. I think no matter how old you are is like, okay, you know, the world's going to stop for maybe a day or two. We're going to go to the funeral. It will be sort of socially acceptable for me not to go to work, not to go about my normal routines. Maybe I'll get another day or two after that. But after that, like, people stop checking on you. People stop making special arrangements. People kind of, even if you aren't doing anything that's part of your routine, everybody else goes back to their routine. Um, And that is really hard. And I thought that this book did a great job of showing that that's sadly the reality of grief. And as you said, demonstrating how different people, whether it's different ages or different personalities, cope with that. And Amy was not prepared to wake up from a coma and to face that for the first time. I mean, it's it's a brutal trauma that she's been through and I wish that I didn't feel so aligned with Lou because I think that it makes me a little bit unnecessarily harsh toward Amy and I'm trying to reconcile that even in real time as we talk because I think that Lou was right in a lot of moments to be like you're not seeing that other people are hurting too you only care about sort of managing your own grief and for you what that seems to look like at least for a big chunk of the book is like staying in bed and not helping and I, you know there's a part of me that's like that's sort of unfair that such tough love on a 14 year old that really went through a serious trauma as we keep saying but then there's another part of me that's like somebody had to tell her that like she needs to start changing the way that she's looking at this somebody needs to remind her that other people are grieving so I'm so torn and I think that if Lou had only you know taken a few moments to either suggest (coughs) that she go talk to somebody which is probably not something that would have happened in 2000 realistically or sat down with her and had a calmer more meaningful conversation about what she was really going through on the inside, I think that would have balanced out the whole relationship for me a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I agree. I definitely did find that it was, you know, despite what Amy had been through, it was a little hard to be on her side in the story, which feels, it feels horrible to say because she did go through such a horrible experience. But I mean, some of the things that she would say to her sister, because I mean, her Lou does say a couple of things at some point or at certain points throughout the novel that I was kind of like, oh, like that was a little harsh, you know, but Amy says some really awful things too. And she does it way more often than things that are just like, don't even pretend to care. You've never cared about us. You know, just like these really hurtful comments to Lou and I get that she's 15, but like, I don't know. She just seemed very, for lack of a better word, like pretty bratty, um, which I probably would be too if my mom died, but it seemed a little
0: harder to stomach reading it as an adult. It would have been easier for me if she was being bratty to her friends but it was hard for me that she was being bratty to her family. I think that is sort of the best way that I can explain it um, because these are people that are going through not necessarily the same experience that you're going through, but they're like also managing their emot- their emotions around whatever experience they're having. So um, if you want to be bratty to other people, fine, but maybe not so much the people that are weathering this storm with you. One of the things that really brings Amy and Lou together in the end though is of course, because it's a horse book, a horse. A horse bonds them And makes them realize that they have a lot more in common than they ever could have guessed. We haven't talked much about the horses, because the book really isn't about horses. I mean, the horses are... Very important pieces of the story, and of course, like, they inform so much of what happens around Amy, but it's it's Sugarfoot at the end of the book that's really the key here to bringing the family together. Sugarfoot is a little Shetland pony that you described who belonged to Mrs. Bell, who was the elderly neighbor that died after Amy's accident. And I could not get over how cute Sugarfoot was in my head in that first scene where we meet him, <laughs> and he's, like, walking around the house and picking apples out of bowls on the counter. I was like, I want one. I want one now. <laughs> But when they go get Sugarfoot after his mom, Mrs. Bell, dies, he is completely emaciated. He hasn't eaten anything. And he's also depressed because he, like Amy, has lost his heart and soul, his caretaker. Like, he's experienced a very similar trauma. And he, too, has, has gone through a physical trauma as well. Amy, of course, was in the car accident, but Sugarfoot was was left alone for a week and hasn't had anything to eat or drink. He's barely alive, really, when they get to him. And, and over the course of the book, there's, like, a lot, a lot, a lot about, like, how Sugarfoot is so sick and how they try all of these things and nothing's working. And in the end, it's really Lou who does, like, the final thing that seems to bring him out of his shell. So Amy sort of, after all of these efforts to treat his physical ailments, realizes that she needs to treat his grief first, which was really the moment when I was like, okay, Lauren Brooke, I see what you're doing here. Like, we all need to treat our grief, but are you really treating yours? So Amy kind of realizes that she needs to change her approach and she's going to like stay up all night with Sugarfoot, but Lou offers to help so that Amy can get some sleep and Amy wakes up in the morning and she's like, oh, Lou definitely went to bed and Sugarfoot's definitely dead, but she goes and sees that Lou stayed up all night and is singing to Sugarfoot. And Sugarfoot's former owner used to sing to him. And so that's brought him so much happiness. And he's really like restored his his will to live and it brings the sisters back together. What did you think about that whole thing?
1: I thought that it was probably one of the more powerful moments of the book because as you mentioned, I think it definitely mirrored Amy's grief in that, you know, I, well, I almost feel like they brought more attention to the horse's need yes. um, for that grief to be treated in order for him to kind of continue to move on. And so I don't know if the author did that on purpose just because it is like a. A horse book and be a book for kids so i don't know if that was actually like intentional on on the author's part i wish they would have spent more time focusing that attention on amy and yeah. her grief um but i did think that it was definitely an interesting kind of like metaphor and like mirroring of amy's experience and i also thought that it was kind of cool that like despite amy's effort like Amy was not able to cure this horse even though she's kind of like she and her mom are known for like this is what they do like they cure horses so I thought that it was kind of good for Amy to get like a little bit of a pride check there and then also I thought that it was a great mirroring of how Lou really did kind of come in to save the day in ways that weren't really recognized in the book and when she is kind of the one that ultimately like saves Sugarfoot by singing to him and giving him that restoration of will to live and then he ends up eating and it's all because of Lou and I really kind of felt like a lot of the book was like that like if she hadn't come into the picture Heartland wouldn't have been restored in the first place and so I think it was kind of a cool way for the author to be like see Lou really saved the day and you know what
0: Amy did too. And yay, like happy ending. So I liked that. Well, for better or worse, Amy is single-minded really in her love of horses. And so I think in order for Lou really to impress her and earn her trust, it had to be like a horse-focused endeavor. Like there had to be a horse at the center of it, Amy really, I think, wanted Lou to prove that she didn't hate horses because I think for Amy, like, seeing somebody pour their love into a horse is, like, her best proof that you have a heart and so I think she needed to see it that way and it was really powerful for her to like you know she she didn't understand all of these other efforts that Lou had made over the course of the book but this is kind of a language that she understands which is caring for animals and I think she sort of recognized part of herself in her sister and given the fact that they have such a big age gap and that they haven't had a relationship before I think they needed to have like that moment of recognition and it took lou proving that she like isn't heartless when it comes to the animals to do that for amy so that was really sweet and in the end lou isn't making any promises but she might stay at heartland and spoiler alert she does and she marries the vet
1: yes i wrote that down in my book (laughs) I love their, they kind of had like, a little sexual tension in there, too. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, they get married.
0: Yeah. I love that Amy was, like, something weird passed between them. And I was like, yeah, they like each other, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> and you should totally um, like Ty.
1: <laughs> but I do think that, so I feel like as a kid reading this, I was totally, like, team Ty. And obviously, like, I still am until the day that I die. like right. For sure. But, you know, the vet, Scott, also has a little brother named Matt. Is that yeah, right? Matt. Named Matt. And, like, as an adult reading it, I was like, okay, but, like, Matt's also super legit. <laughs> like, he's <laughs> super nice. He, like, helps her take care of Sugarfoot and, like, yeah, he's, like, kind of a flirt and, like, a little bit too, like, winky-winky. But,
0: like... Listeners, Hannah just like, did a wink. And for those, since you can't see, <laughs> I feel like everybody needs to know. <laughs> Um, But, I mean, you know, he was. She has (laughs) good options, which a lot of the protagonists in these books don't. Like, there's usually, like, the guy that you're supposed to be with and then the guy that you want to be with but that you so clearly shouldn't be with. And I think either of those options would have been great for her.
1: Same. And I thought that that was kind of unique that, like, She... And I can't remember if this actually turns into, like, a legitimate love triangle. But if it did and it turning into, like, a love triangle, I think reading it as an adult, I would be like, I honestly don't know. Like, I would actually feel pretty okay with, like, no matter what pick or, like, who she chose. Because they both seemed, like, really nice
0: guys. But obviously, like, tie childhood friendship. I mean, friends to lovers. It's, like, the best romance trope ever. (laughs) The ideal. And he just seems dreamy. I have not seen the tv series but there was an adaptation in canada that started in 2007 i watched the trailer this morning and it does seem like something i could have gotten into um so who knows i think a lot of it's available on youtube and maybe i'll watch some of it ty i mean all of the people in it looked like they're just like beautiful and i'm sure ty is the most beautiful among them so if i get a chance to watch <laughs> it i'll report back um so on the whole hannah coming back to heartland How has the experience compared to your memory of reading it as a kid? Do you think it's held up for you? Has it disappointed you in some way?
1: I think kind of a little bit of both. As a kid reading this, I think it would have been easier for me to push aside the fact that, like, I personally don't think that this is outstanding literature in the sense that, you know, some of these deeper themes weren't really addressed, I feel like, terribly well And I don't think the characters were maybe developed as well as they could have been. I think as a kid, it's easier to be more plot driven and be more attracted by just the aspect that you're following this like teenage girl living on a farm, which is like the dream. But at the same time, as an adult reading it, it's hard not to remember those like warm and fuzzy feelings that you had when you were a kid, you know, even those little things like, Oh yeah, I remember Sundance and thinking he was the coolest thing ever and like, oh yeah, I remember that she had gray eyes and I always wanted her gray eyes and like even those little things like Amy and Ty and remembering how much like you loved their romance. So I think just the nostalgia factor in general was enough for me to be really happy that I reread it. Do I even think that I would feel compelled to like reread the rest of the series I don't think so so I guess like in a way it's held up but not in the sense that like I think this is a really wonderful piece of literature I just know that I really loved it as a kid and it was kind of fun getting to re-experience that well I'm
0: glad that I got to enable you to have that unique experience. It was fun for me to come back to it too. (laughs) What else have you been reading lately and loving, perhaps finer literature than Heartland? What would you recommend to our listeners? So I recently
1: just read The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead for the first time, which was published in 2019, and that book was absolutely excellent, albeit, you know, definitely more of a hard-hitting Read. It follows um, a young boy during the civil rights movement and his experience at this reform school that was just really traumatic. But That being said, you know, it was a really, really, really excellent book. Um, I would definitely recommend it for anyone that thinks that they can handle that triggering content, obviously. And then I'm also I also recently read The Poppy War, which is a historical war. I I don't know what you call it, like war fantasy, but it follows this young woman who is just like wickedly smart and she ends up going to this school to train soldiers essentially. And then that's kind of like the first half of the book because she's at this like soldier academy. And then the whole second half of the book is essentially their country going to war. And it actually is a very, very, very real representation. The author talks about this of the Nanking massacre that happened in China when Japan came in and basically slaughtered a lot of China. And it was an incredibly devastating event that a lot of obviously Americans
0: don't know a lot about because it's not a part of American history. Thank you for those recommendations. I'm going to include links to both of those in the show notes for this episode along with a link to Heartland and of course to Book Nerd Native. Hannah, after following you on Bookstagram for a really long time, it's been so fun actually talking with you, meeting you face-to-face, talking horse books. I'm so glad that we share this horse book, horse girl history. Um, and you are the perfect person to talk about this with. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast.